We are continuing this morning in our study of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, picking up at verse 4 of chapter 3 and working through to the end of that chapter. Now, in terms of the big picture, in this letter, as we've seen several times now, but Paul seems to be doing three main things. He's describing and defending his practices as, a, as an apostle. He's describing and defending his perspectives as an apostle and describing and defending his position as an apostle. And up to this point, the majority of what we've looked at can be placed under that first heading that as Paul has proceeded to describe and defend some of the practices and decisions that he's made as an apostle. Last week, however, we saw Paul transition into a new section of the letter where he will mainly but not exclusively deal more with matters related to the second heading, and that is describing and defending some of the perspectives that have driven and guided him as he carried out his apostolic ministry. In particular, we looked at Paul's understanding that the real power behind effective ministry is God himself, as he, by his Spirit, works on human hearts to effect real and lasting change. And that being the case, Paul cannot claim to have, to, uh, to have been anything other than uh, an instrument that God has used in that process. And so because that is what's going on, that's how ministry happens. The thing that best commends Paul's ministry are the changed and still changing lives of men and women that God continued to bring across his path. Those people, those living letters of recommendation, were far more significant than any pieces of paper that Paul's opponents might have produced to commend themselves to others. And it is these same opponents that we need to keep in view this morning as we continue to look at the perspectives that undergirded Paul's life and ministry. Indeed, this is one of the keys to making sense of this letter that otherwise... I think would uh, likely resist all efforts at being properly understood. The topics that Paul chooses, the points that he makes, the things that he emphasizes, are all directly related to and are, are response to various things being done and said by some spiritual imposters who'd set up shop in Corinth after Paul left and who continued to make trouble for Paul by undermining the gospel work that he had worked so hard to establish. And one of the main things going on, judging from what Paul writes, is that these newcomers were promoting a form of what you might call Jewish Christianity that, while not dismissing Jesus altogether, seems to have been emphasizing the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant at the expense of the gospel, and in a way which seems to have misunderstood the deep significance of Christ's coming, especially the New Covenant era that was inaugurated by it. That dynamic is what seems to be behind much of what Paul says in this letter, and in particular behind the words before us this morning, which we're going to look at in uh, three sections. Firstly, we're going to look at verses 4 to 6, where Paul will set the stage by first talking about the confidence that he has in ministry as a result of some of the things that we saw last week. And then he will, 
after that, began to distance and distinguish his ministry from that of his opponents. Secondly, we'll look at verses 7 to 10, and then finally verses 11 to 18. And in both of those sections, we're going to see how Paul appeals to events from the Old Testament book of Exodus to demonstrate that the new covenant inaugurated by Christ is a better and more glorious covenant than the Mosaic one, which Paul's opponents seem to be emphasizing so much. And the implication there seems to be that Paul's ministry, which centered on Christ, not on Moses or the Mosaic covenant, his ministry is therefore to be preferred over that of the false teachers. That seems to be what he's doing here. At any rate, that's where we're going. Before we go any further with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, please hear now your people as we are on the threshold of this text. These words that you have authored and preserved for us. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good and life-nurturing truths that are right here in front of us and by which you conform us all to the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now there's two things I want to draw your attention to here. Firstly, there is Paul's confidence. As we saw last week, Paul firmly believed that any effectiveness he had in his ministry was entirely due to the fact that God had done the work in the hearts of the people to whom he ministered, not him. And that fact, all by itself, that God had done the work, gave Paul great hope. For the Corinthian people, as fickle and as difficult as they could sometimes be. And it's also the reason why Paul persevered with them long past the time when I think most other people would have just written them off and moved on. But Paul was not only confident that God had worked and was working in the Corinthians, he was also confident that this same God had set him apart and had rendered him fully competent as a minister of the new covenant which Christ inaugurated by his coming. And when Paul wrote these things, I think he almost certainly had in mind his own conversion experience on the Damascus Road, from which he no doubt drew great confidence that the God who first set him on that path would see him through to the end of it. Now the other thing I want you to see in this opening section is this phrase, Ministers of a new covenant, and especially the new covenant part of that, which you need to understand because if you don't know what Paul is talking about, then the rest of this passage will probably not make much sense to you. Now, the word covenant is the Bible word used to describe the relationship between God and the people with whom he chooses to be in relationship. God's covenant relationships with his people are always fundamentally his decision 
and are completely a function of His grace and mercy. In other words, when God decides to covenant with a person or with a people, He never does so because of something in them that merits or mandates His being in a relationship with them. The Bible makes it clear that when God decides to covenant with a person or a people, it's always because of something in Him that is in God. It's a result of His sovereign decision to set His love on a particular person or people for reasons that are entirely His own. At the same time, while all of God's covenant relationships are initiated because of this undeserved mercy... Once they are initiated, they are always accompanied by both blessings and curses that carry within them the expectation of faithfulness on the part of God's people. The blessings are what happens as a consequence of God's people being faithful to this God who's covenanted with them. The curses are what happen when God's people are not faithful to the God who's covenanted with them. Even so... These curses are always to be understood in the context of an underlying relationship with God. And and which means that they are more disciplinary in nature than they are punitive. At any rate, the story of the Bible is, in many ways, the story of God's determining to be in a covenant relationship with a particular people. And then how sin and the fall affected that. And finally, what God did to undo the effects of sin and the fall and so reconcile his people to himself that they might be with him forever. And as we look at the developing storyline of the Bible, we can see in this storyline how it is punctuated at various places by the issuing and restatement and expansion of God's covenant relationship with his people. Starting with Adam, then moving through to Noah, where the things said to Adam are reaffirmed and expanded upon. Next comes Abraham, to whom God's blessings are reaffirmed and once again expanded. And then Moses, and then David according to the same pattern, finally all the way to Christ. And having said all that, it's important to be clear about the fact that while there are these various, uh, what we could call administrations of God's covenant through various persons like Adam and Noah and Abraham, etc., it still remains that they are essentially one covenant and not a succession of standalone, isolated covenants. As Hebrews 13 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Notice that the writer of Hebrews at the end of his letter gives evidence of his own understanding of the unity of the covenant. In other words, he doesn't say, by the blood of the eternal covenants, plural, but rather, by the blood of the one eternal covenant. And apparently in his own mind, uh, and even though he talks about old covenants and new ones, in the letter of Hebrews itself, the writer still sees that there is a link between them. Even though the manner in which God's grace is administered differs from one covenant to the next, even though one covenant may supersede another and so prove itself superior as the new covenant in Christ does, there is still an abiding 
connectedness between the covenants. The covenants are not in competition with one another, nor are they contradictory to one another. They are still and all the outworking of the one overarching plan and purpose of God. And so when Paul talks about himself, sorry, equipment malfunction. There we go. When Paul talks about himself and his colleagues being ministers of a new covenant, and then when he goes on to say that this new covenant is of the Spirit and not of the letter, he's saying at least two important things. He's saying that his ministry is not, first of all, something that is foreign to what God is doing or to the way that God has always related to his people. Right? It's, it's right in line with all of that, with all of these covenants. However, and this is the second thing, while he is saying that his ministry is in step, completely in step with the Mosaic Covenant, he's also saying that it's a step further than the Mosaic Covenant. And as such, it's part of a new stage in God's ongoing covenant relationship with his people. And this stage is one that is characterized by the outpouring of God's Spirit in which the prophets speak of in places like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. And this then is the distinction that Paul is referring to when he says his ministry is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And so having now introduced this distinction, in the next section Paul goes on to elaborate on the differences between the former covenant and the new one. He says, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. Now again, there's several things to notice in that section. Firstly, notice the language that Paul uses to describe the former covenant. He calls it a ministry of death. He calls it a ministry of condemnation, in verse 9. And finally, a ministry whose glory relative to the glory of the new covenant was no glory at all. And over against that, Paul describes the New Covenant ministry as a ministry of the Spirit, a ministry of righteousness. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Is he saying that the Mosaic Covenant was a bad thing? Is he disparaging the law of God? Absolutely not. As Paul makes clear in a number of places in his letters, the problem with the former covenant is not with the covenant itself, but with one of the parties of the covenant, namely us. Right? We're the problem with the covenant. The law of God is not defective. We are. And so when Paul describes the former covenant as a ministry of death and condemnation, he's not belittling the law of God. What he's doing is talking about the effect and consequence of the issuing of the law of God. 
He's talking about what that consequence is for defective people like you and me who are subject to that law. And one of my professors, Doug Kelly, describes it like this. He says, the law is a transcript of the character of God, showing us the holiness and purity and righteousness of God. And as the law comes to us, we begin to see how the purity of God would require that we treat others properly by not stealing or lying or envying and so on. And then when we begin to see our darkness and how unlike God we are, and I might add, we see as well how incapable we are of keeping this law, which then confirms the justness of our condemnation and the sentence of death that rests upon us all. Or as Calvin more succinctly puts it, the office of the law is to show us the disease in such a way that it shows us no hope of a cure. That was the effect of the old covenant. And the task of the new covenant was to address all of the problems that were made painfully obvious in the midst of that old covenant. The righteousness that the letter of the law pointed to but could not in itself produce was supplied by the new covenant through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then is existentially applied and enacted and worked out by the internal and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's words here, particularly these seemingly harsh descriptions of the Mosaic Covenant, are not intended to be dismissive or disrespectful of the law of God. As Paul makes clear in Romans 7, the law is good, and it is right, and it is holy. It's easy to mischaracterize the law, and so Paul doesn't want that to happen, but it's also easy to misuse the law. And Paul doesn't want that to happen either, either misusing it as a means of spiritual achievement or as a way of claiming spiritual superiority. Paul doesn't want that to happen either. And so what Paul is doing here is trying to put the law and the Mosaic covenant, of which it is the central aspect, he's trying to put that in proper perspective relative to this new thing that God has done and was doing through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because apparently, Paul's opponents were uh, misusing the law and they were blowing it all out of proportion in the other way. As, and so what Paul is saying is that they, these, his opponents have got their proportions wrong. They've got them mixed up. They've got it completely backwards. They're glorying in something that by comparison has no glory at all. It's like what happens, you know, when you're at home maybe and electricity goes out. And when that happens and if you're prepared and you've got a candle nearby and you light it in a darkened room, that candle will shed a sufficient amount of light which in the context seems bright and distinctive. But when the power suddenly comes on and all of a sudden the relative brightness of that candle is swallowed up by the overpowering brightness of the electric lights. That's the way that Paul sees the relationship between the former covenant under Moses and the new covenant with Christ in terms of the relative glory associated with them. When Jesus showed up, 
even the glory and brightness of the old covenant was as nothing compared to it. Completely blew it away. But the difference between the two covenants is not just that the new covenant is exceedingly more glorious. It's also more enduring. Indeed, as verse 11 says, it's permanent. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, in making this point about the permanence of the new covenant versus the temporary nature of the old covenant, Paul refers to some events in Exodus 34 that describe Moses' being in the presence of the Lord. Maybe you've read that. Maybe you remember this. But those verses describe Moses being in the presence of the Lord and then his subsequent interactions with the people of God. Now, there's a lot going on in Exodus 34, but for our purposes, the thing of significance is that as a result of Moses being in the presence of the Lord, this interesting thing would happen. His face would apparently take on a kind of glow because of the overpowering glory of the Lord. It would do this for a time. And what this would have done, I think, amongst other things for Moses, is that it would have confirmed the legitimacy of Moses' leadership in an environment where his leadership had been challenged on more than one occasion. After all, who else is walking around with the glow that came from being in the presence of the Lord? Nobody. But there's something intriguing about Exodus 34. It's at the end of it. It says there, that at first, the fact that Moses' face glowed after being with the Lord was something that unnerved or frightened people. You can imagine that, maybe. Somebody coming up to you. You can imagine that being a little uh, off-putting. Nevertheless, the people seemed to have overcome that. And so they would gather around and listen as Moses shared what the Lord had said to him. So Moses would go before the Lord. The Lord would tell him things. He'd take on this glow. He'd come and talk to the people. And... Um, But then it says this interesting thing. It says that after he was finished speaking to the people, he would put a veil on his face. After. Now, if he put the veil on his face before, because of the glow, because it was so unnerving, that would seem to make sense. But the passage says he put it on after he spoke with them. Why? Well, the passage doesn't say. It just describes what happened without comment or explanation. But you fast forward a dozen or so centuries, and the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is the key, fills in the blank. What does he say? He says that Moses put the veil on his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was coming to an end. In short, he did it so that the people would not see this glory fade from his face. So that they would not see that fading glory 
as attached to the Old Covenant. Now, there were likely contextual reasons for Moses not wanting people to see that, like, for example, maybe the opportunity that such a thing might create for Moses' opponents to criticize and undermine his position further. Maybe the potential for discouragement that it might hold for people who at that time didn't need anything more discouraging going on in their life. Who knows? But whatever Moses' reasons were for not wanting the people to see the glory on his face fade, Paul takes the fact that it did fade as being illustrative of the whole nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Paul saw the fading glory on Moses' face as being predictive of what would one day come to pass. That is, that the Mosaic Covenant would also fade. That it, it too was a temporary thing. That it was a covenant that was not meant to endure forever on its own, but which God always intended to follow up and expand with a new, and to use the language of Hebrews, a better covenant. And then having made this connection to the whole Moses veil incident in the Old Testament, Paul takes the imagery and symbolism a step further. He says this, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, the, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ, Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The external, physical veil that prevented the people of Israel from seeing glory fade from Moses' face. In other words, the veil that prevented them from seeing the Mosaic Covenant in its proper perspective. As a temporary covenant. That veil is still in place, said Paul. Not physically, but internally and spiritually. The true nature of the Mosaic Covenant was still being obscured or veiled in the hearts and minds of people all over the place. Even as they heard the Mosaic Scriptures read. And you have to remember, right, that at the time of the writing of this letter, the New Testament had not been completed. Much less compiled into any sort of canon. As a result, when God's people got together, what were the scriptures they heard? The Old Testament. What were they taught on a regular basis? The Old Testament. The same Old Testament that Jesus took the two men through as they walked to Emmaus in Luke 24. And what that means is that when the Jews gathered... And when the Christians gathered, they were using the exact same set of scriptures. But the difference, says Paul, is that for one group, their hearts and minds are veiled and thus prevented from seeing the glory to which the Old Testament scriptures were pointing, that is the Lord Jesus. And for the other group, that veil had been removed. How is it removed? Verse 16 says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And this Lord, says Paul, this Lord Jesus is the Spirit. 
In other words, Paul's, he's come full circle. The new covenant ministry that he's engaged in, that is of the Spirit, this fulfillment of the prophecies of Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, all of that is wrapped up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why Paul's emphasis on Christ over the Mosaic Covenant is the right one, and equally why the opposite perspective as promoted by his opponents needed to be disregarded. Well, we're almost finished here, but there's uh, one little bit at the tail end that I don't want you to miss. And it's, it's this. After distinguishing his new covenant ministry, centered on Christ, over that of his opponents. And after showing why his opponent's emphasis was wrong. And after showing the fading, temporary, and preparatory nature of the old covenant compared to the greater glory and permanence of the new one. And after showing the impossibility of rightly understanding the Mosaic law apart from Christ, after all of that, Paul gives us two things at the end here, two marks that are indicators that accrue to a genuine ministry that's associated with this new covenant ministry, this outpouring of God's Spirit. The first mark is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom that comes from the knowledge that though we are sinful and guilty, and without the ability to justify ourselves, as the law of God so clearly reveals, our sin has been covered by Christ's death, and the penalty that we surely deserved, He has endured in our place. There's freedom there. Freedom that comes from knowing that because of Christ, we can pursue holiness but not in hopes of gaining God's love. We already have that. As a means of showing the greatness and glory of this God whose love for us cannot be lost. There's freedom there. Freedom that comes from knowing that however great our sin, God's mercy is greater. Freedom that comes from knowing that God has not left us to our own devices, but He sent His Spirit into our hearts to indwell us, to make us to be what He's already declared us to be in Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And with this statement, I think Paul is challenging the Corinthian people to evaluate the so-called ministry of his opponents. He's giving them a mark to look for. He's asking them to consider the outcome and the effect of what these imposters were pushing. Was the result of their teaching and ministry freedom? Or were people being placed back under the bondage of a wrong use and wrong understanding of the law? What did they see happening? The other mark that Paul gives is transformation. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's so much more there that we, than we could possibly consider. But the guts of it is this. I mean, there's several sermons in that text. 
But the guts of it is this. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's not only freedom, there's also transformation. There is change. And not just any change. It's a common change to a common image. We all are being transformed into the same image. Namely, the image of Christ who's not only our Savior, He's our future. But here's what I want you to notice. How this transformation takes place. How is that? Verse 18. As we behold the glory of the Lord. As we set our eyes on Jesus. As we do that, we are seeing what we are becoming. Adoration precedes transformation. To put it another way, we become like that which we worship. Now, I think that principle works in both positive and negative ways. But here, Paul talks about the positive aspect of it. As we behold and keep beholding the glory of the Lord, as we set our eyes on Jesus, as we adore and worship Him, that becomes a crucial part of this process by which we are conformed to His image. And this too, I believe Paul is offering up as a means for the confused Corinthians to properly evaluate the ministry that's currently taking place amongst them at the hands of these false teachers. In addition to asking whether the outcome of the ministry currently taking place amongst them was producing freedom or bondage, they needed to also ask whether the outcome was transformational. Or was the outcome just stagnation? Was the teaching they were receiving resulting in changed and changing people? Were they being led to greater adoration and wonder at the Lord Jesus? Were they becoming more and more like this Christ they were worshipping? Or were their attentions being directed elsewhere? Was their devotion being set on other things? Those important questions. And they're challenging questions. And you've heard me say this many times before, but I'll keep, I'm going to keep saying it until you shut me up. But our tendency, when we read the Bible, is to gravitate to the best seat in the text. In this case, to stand next to Paul as he points his finger at the, <clears throat> at the opponents. But let me ask you not to do that this morning. Let me ask you to move around inside the text. Instead of standing next to Paul, stand somewhere else, maybe across from him. And as you stand across from him, listen carefully to what God, through Paul, might be saying to you. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. Use this truth as a skillful surgeon uses a scalpel to cut away those parts of us that are not like Jesus and to affirm and confirm us in those areas where we are becoming and looking 
more and more like him. We thank you that we have the confidence, just as Paul did, that you're going to do both those things. And that you always finish what you start. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll receive that at this time.